Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood theologian and host of the Theology Pit, Samson Kovach. And uh, here, we're going to be doing a special Theology Pit. I figure, you know, in between series, like, like I've done before, I'll just do kind of general topics, general talking. And one of the ones that have, have come up uh, lately has um, been dealing with the Sabbath and and what the Sabbath is, how as Christians are we to understand it? Because if you remember through our study on the Bible that we just finished, we are on this side of the cross. We are on this side of the Bible. We have the whole story. We have the whole picture uh, to take a look at. And the advantage of doing that means that we understand the beginning from the end and what that translates to, you know, in our lives, how that applies to us, what the homiletical principle is that that applies to us. Now, this does not have to deal with, or I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't say it in that way. This does not deal with our justification. This is actually a sanctification question. Uh, somebody even suggested to me one time that I do an entire series on sanctification. And that, I mean, that would be another huge series on looking at the different ways that the different uh, traditions and denominations think about sanctification. But um, what we're going to be talking about today is specifically sanctification. So again, if you're all, if, if you are justified, whether or not you hold this doesn't make any difference. But we're going to be talking about the Sabbath. We are going to look at it because a lot of times what people will do is they will just go to, you know, the book of Exodus, for example, and they will read that, um, you know, about the Sabbath and then apply that to their life. And they skip over the entire, you know, rest of the Bible. Think about it like this. Whenever you're interpreting the Bible, especially Old Testament, something from like the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the of the Bible, you're looking back through the New Testament. So kind of looking down the corridor of the New Testament to get to it, or to get your answer, you're looking from the Old Testament up through the New Testament and to find out, okay, what does that mean? How does it apply to me? What is Christ's role in it? Because if you interpret the book of Exodus without Christ, you're not interpreting the Bible Properly, you're not interpreting it biblically. You're using poor hermeneutics. Um, you have to have a high Christology in order to interpret uh, the Old Testament. All right, let me get a little slurp of water here. Okay, so um, the Sabbath day, in a nutshell, in um, I guess just our our modern day understanding. Okay. It is Saturday. It's not Sunday. I know a lot of people want to say that, well, the Sabbath day is Sunday and that's why, you know, I don't work on Sunday. I don't, I don't do certain things on Sunday because I'm not supposed to. And Sunday is the Sabbath day and it's not, uh, it's always been Saturday. Sunday is the Lord's day. Um, whenever the, uh, Christians, uh, first started being, um, yeah, practicing their faith, they really just look like a separate sect of Judaism. 
um, to the if you were you know a Roman governor or a Roman guard or a Roman citizen, and you know you were just your typical Roman, you were not um, you were not a Christian, you were not a Jew, you were just a, a Gentile um, Roman. You know all your other gods, everything, and it's sort of like think about it now when you, when you think about um, Islam, for example, there might be a lot of you out there that have never really studied Islam, and. You know, could you tell the difference between a, a Sunni and a Shiite when it comes to, you know, the Islamic faith? You know, I mean, I, I'm guessing that I'm guessing that you couldn't. I'm guessing that you didn't even know if there was a distinction. And there are, you know, other subsects, you, you know, you can say of Islam. Well, with Judaism, I mean, at this time period, um, you know, after the resurrection of Christ um, and, and in the church's early years, before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple, um, you had, of course, you know, you had your um, your pharisaical branch of Judaism. You had your Sadducee or Sadduceeical, I don't know, the Sadducees, their branch of Judaism. You had the Essene community, which lived in the uh, the, the Qumran sect around the Dead Sea. Um, you know, they wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, you had other like minor ones. You had, you know, the zealots um, that were looking for like the military type um, overthrow. Uh, you had people that were following um, John the Baptist. And I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't remember uh, their, their name. But, uh, you know, they were followers of John the Baptist. The, uh, and then you had your Christians. And you're looking at them and they're all very similar, okay? They would all confess to worshiping one God. They would all hold, you know, um, religious rites, liturgical type things, celebrations, feast days, um, you know, uh, services, much in the same way. I mean, you know, whenever Christ uh, was in the Upper Room Discourse celebrating the Passover, he celebrated a traditional Jewish liturgy. These were, you know, these early Christians were Jews that you know, still had a cultural Jewish awareness. And so there was no big set when you were looking at them, there was no like huge, you know, separation. Okay. Um, you know, one had their services on Saturday, another had their services on Sunday, you know, but they all claimed similar things. One you know, group, um, was looking for, the Messiah to come. One claimed that the Messiah had come. I mean, really, you think about it like that, how confusing that that may have been for any you know, average Roman. So, when it comes to this understanding of the Sabbath, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we say, well, the, the Christians changed the Sabbath to Sunday, when that's not what happened at all. We celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday because that is the day that Christ rose. That is the first day. Um, it, when you go back to Genesis and it talks about um, God creating, you know, everything in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And that's why uh, you have the the uh, Sabbath day in there. Um, that's even articulated in uh, Exodus 20. But, you know, there are all these days. But the first day was the day he said in the beginning, um, you know, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Think about that. Christ being resurrected on the first day. 
He is the light. He is the world. You think of all the imagery that's coming through. Um, you know, when you understand like these titles that are given to to Jesus about him being the Word, him and being the light, him being the the first fruits. Things that it says in uh, Colossians, he's the beginning. He is you know Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. You have all of this imagery coming in. So the Lord's Day is celebrating, you know, the true God celebrating Yahweh, who is Jesus. Jesus is the second person in the Trinity. He is Yahweh. Yahweh is the title for God. Um, Yahweh is not the name of the Father. Okay, Yahweh is. Uh, think of think of God as a whole. Think of the word God, and just as as Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Um, and I, I think we proved that in earlier um, theology pits, uh, biblically. So, whenever you are you know, getting this understanding, remember what you're reading in the Old Testament is dealing with a particular group of people at a particular time, and you need to understand that. And that is going to be slightly different, okay, than the fulfillment of Christ. In the New Testament, okay? So, I'm going to start off with Galatians here, and I know that you may think that's kind of an odd place to start, um, but I just want to make sure that we have this justification thing under control, and we can move into the sanctification thing and get that under control a little bit too, because sometimes people like to push this back into justification without really knowing it, and you know that's all right if you're making that mistake it's not you know it's it's not a um you know condemn, condemnable heresy or, or or whatever you know it's not you're not losing your justification you know because you don't understand this it's nothing like that but here's the problem in galatians that the galatians were having and that like paul is trying to you know get them to understand that the jewish people that are coming around okay i mean he he already slapped down you know peter for not eating with the Jews or not eating with the Gentiles when the Jews came around because, you know, that wasn't proper and that sort of thing. And, and because there was a law that, you know, said that you couldn't do this within Jewish society. And, um, yeah, Paul is trying to make the argument that, listen, the Jews were under this law. Okay. And, and other places he even says, even the Gentiles understand that there's law. They actually do what's right according to the law without ever having known the law because the law was written on their hearts. But here's the argument that he's making. In Christ, because of Christ's faithfulness, because of what he did, because we are in Christ now, we are no longer under the law. And I know you're probably listening to that saying, yeah, I know we're under grace. Okay. All right, good. Keep that in your head. We're no longer under the law. Now, when I say the law, you're thinking we're no longer under the Ten Commandments, the law of the Old Testament. And a lot of people say, if we're not, then we can just break those and we can do whatever. No, it's called antinomianism, okay? We, we are not lawbreakers because Christ fulfilled the law. We still uphold it. It is still being upheld. It is upheld within Christ, okay? We benefit from his works in, in, just in this sense. So, um, what is going on is that the Jewish people, the Judaizers, are coming to these Gentiles and saying that, you know, you need to still uphold the law and hold on to the law. And there's this argument, well, really, do they or don't they? And the Galatians, you know, are kind of, it, to their credit, I, I would assume, from what I infer from the book, book Galatians, they were pushing back against that a little bit. They, they had that understanding that, no, you know, we don't have to be you know, Jews, 
in order to be Christians. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to go through any Jewish rituals or anything in order to then become Christians. Okay, we're, we're Christians. But what they did is instead of adhering to the Old Testament law, they were building a new law. They were building a New Testament law. They were building a Christian law. So like you would have like um, the, the Jewish Ten Commandments, they were in a way like a Christian Ten Commandments, okay? These are the certain things that you must do in order to be saved, all right? And Paul is coming through here in, in the second chapter, and he's, he's kind of slamming them about this. He's like, listen, um, let me find here uh, where exactly it is. Um, in, in verse uh, 17, chapter two, verse 17, it says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ the one who encourages sin? Absolutely not. But this is the important one. If I build up again, those things I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. So Christ has already come and done this. Okay, he has already justified us, and really, the uh, this this particular unit of thought, this pericope, starts in um, verse fifteen. You can read through it yourself if you want to. I mean, read the entire book of Galatians. I, I, I highly encourage that. But um, you know, start with uh, in this in this particular thought is from verse um, you know fifteen to twenty one. Here, what's going on is that. You know, y- y- you were you were justified by Christ. All right, you understand that. Okay, but you then build up. I'll read verse verse 18 again because I think it's really important. But if I build up again those things I once destroyed, what are those things that I once destroyed? Being, thinking that I am being justified by my works, by the works of the law, by the works of the law of the Old Testament. Okay, I've destroyed those. I've broken those down. I know that I am no longer bound to that because in Christ, that has been fulfilled. So then in order to turn around and you know acknowledge that about the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, and then turn around and build up this Christian one and say, therefore, I am looking to be justified by these things I do under grace, but I'm going to call it grace, even though it's works of my own flesh. It's my things that I'm doing. I am doing all these outward things that give this, this veneer of holiness, this veneer of, of proper etiquette and proper understanding. And because of this, you know, I am then being justified. And Verse 18, that's what he's saying. Those things I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. Okay, if I build up again those things I once destroyed, what were the things that he once destroyed? Old Testament law that was binding them, that wasn't justifying anybody, that wasn't saving anybody, was condemning people. Okay, it was showing people they can't live up to this. Christ came and he destroyed that. He took it down. Okay, we destroy that because we are a part of Christ. So it has been destroyed because it has been fulfilled in Christ. But if you build up that same thing, that same system, it's not it's not what it is exactly. It's not the 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 how can I put this? It's not the thing itself. It's the approach. It's the attitude. It's the methodology. 
I think that'd be the better word for it. I have this methodology of I have to do A, B, and C because the Old Testament says I have to do A, B, and C. Okay. Christ then came and said, no, I fulfilled A, B, and C. You are no longer under that because it has been fulfilled. You've already done it perfectly because you're in me. It's been done perfectly. You don't have to worry about that anymore. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. And you're like, great. You know what? I'm going to make a new A, B, and C. And that's what I have to do. And Paul's sitting there going, wait, no. Listen, if I did that, you know, if I built up those things I once destroyed, then I demonstrate that I'm the one that breaks God's law. Because I'm breaking God's law because God's law was fulfilled in Christ. And he goes through and, um, you know... Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it goes on here. I'll just read the whole thing here. For through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside God's grace, because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Okay? That's it. He's trying to say that if you can be righteous, not only through the Old Testament law, but also through whatever new law you're coming up with, even though it may be based on the Old Testament law, similar to it, uh, the works of Christ, you know, how things are applied to you, how, whatever you're making up, you're missing the point. We're no longer under this law. This law does not justify us. Now, does that mean that we completely ignore all of it because it's been fulfilled? Well, of course not. This is where our sanctification aspect comes into it. When you go through the Ten Commandments, they're not something that we ignore. They're something that we uphold because of Christ. We don't have to do it perfectly. We can't do it perfectly, but we have done it perfectly in Christ. Okay, He is our high priest, and therefore... It's been done right. For example, um, the, the, the first commandment, okay, you shall have no other gods before me. All right, well, that's been fulfilled in Christ, okay? Christ had no other gods. He worshiped God alone, okay? He's our high priest, therefore, he is our representation. And it's by his faithfulness that, you know, we are, that we are redeemed. So, does that mean that we can go and acknowledge other gods, that they exist. Well, no, of course not. And as Christians, we don't. You know, I mean, I do not sit here and say that, you know, the Muslim god Allah is a god. It's not. It's actually Satan. It's satanic. Okay? Everything that is not god is satanic or atheist. Okay? One and the same. These are false gods. These are tin gods. These are gods that don't really exist. There is no other god, okay? You know, there, it's, it's, it's like with, with idols, you know, and, and idols being other gods, okay? This concept, Paul even talks about that. He's like, you know, when he asks, you know, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? He's like, well, yeah, because there's no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing as another god. It, it was sacrificed to nothing. It was sacrificed to the air. You can eat that. But you know what? If that causes somebody else a problem because they see you eating food that was, 
you know, sacrifice to this. And then they think that it's okay to then sacrifice to these false gods and those sort of things. Paul's like, don't do it. Don't cause them to stumble, you know, be in that way because of that, you know, I mean, just uh, abstain from that. Because all things are lawful, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And if that's something that's not profitable, just just don't do it. Not because you have to not do it, but because you want to not do it. Okay, there's this attitude of servitude that Paul is trying to express, that Christ was expressing throughout his entire ministry serving of others. You know, nobody is greater than anybody else. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he came as a servant. I mean, when you when you talk about, you know, authority and respect, you don't get any higher than God. And yet God was a servant. How much more of a servant should we be? That becomes the question here. The second one, the second of the of the Ten Commandments here is not to make any carved images, any graven images, any any idols. Okay, and you know, what what is an idol? Okay, there are two different ways of understanding this. An idol can be seen as another god, a false god. But if you take it to mean that. How is that different from the uh, first commandment? The difference being is that the f- the second commandment is is more dealing with something tangible, okay? Where the first commandment is dealing with something that's more of an idea. So if you have this understanding of this concept of a god that's not really God, okay, this total misunderstanding, then that is different than creating something with your own hands and saying that that is a God. More importantly, creating something and saying that it's Yahweh. And this is what got the Israelites into trouble. Uh, and, and we're going to look at that in a little bit also in, in, um, uh, in uh, I think it's in Exodus somewhere. We'll, we'll take a look at it. But um, what the point here is, is that they were creating in the golden calf scene, you know, um, of, uh, you know, saying that this is Yahweh, this calf is Yahweh. Okay. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt right here. This thing that we have created different than saying that, um, Baal, you know, who, you know, may not have a form, may have a form you know, at the time, uh, that, that is it, or, or saying Allah, you know, is, is, you know, the God that brought you out or the Mormons concept of God or the Jehovah witnesses concept of, of God. Um, that if you're not speaking about a monotheistic Trinitarian understanding of a God, you are not talking about a true God. You are creating a separate God, Okay, breaking the first commandment there. If you are creating something and saying that it's God physically, okay, and saying that that's another God or that that is actually Yahweh, you're breaking the second commandment. All right. The third commandment is not taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, this is not saying a cuss word. Now, I don't think that you should, you know, use our Lord's name, you know, in a, in a vulgar way. 
Okay. Um, I, I think that that's wrong. And I think that there is a secondary meaning to this, but the primary meaning of what's going on here is people at the time used to say like, you know, in the name of this God, uh, this will happen. Or in the name of that God, you shall do this. Or in the name of that God, it has told me to tell you this. He's saying, don't do that. Don't say that I've said something that I haven't said. Be very careful with that. That's why you have these um, you know, tests for prophets, because a prophet is someone that speaks for God. And God said, if they are from me, there will be signs that accompany them. Okay, they will do certain things. They will do miracles, miraculous signs, and not like you know, sleight of hand trick, like I got your nose or you know anything like that. It's going to be things like um, you know certain uh, weather phenomena, or um, you know people being raised from the dead, or healings, or you know certain aspects of it to solidify who they are speaking for. And it says even then. After they have done this, if they say to you, let's go to such and such a place and worship these other gods, you're not to listen to them. So even if they do something that you find to be miraculous, but what they're saying doesn't line up with scripture as an orthodox, you don't listen to them. I mean, how many of these prosperity preachers and people out there claiming to be speaking for God, claiming to be prophesying for God and like saying all these things that if, if they would just be scrutinized in this biblical way, as, as Deuteronomy points out, how many of them would be ignored by people? They would not have $16,000 toilets in their, you know, $26 million mansions and one of their many in their, you know, $4 million airplanes that they're flying around in. All right. Because they would be tested and, you know, it will be shown that, hey, they are saying something that God hasn't said that they're saying that God said. You know, I mean, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, and you want to be very, very careful about doing that, okay? Are they, you know, going to go to hell because of that? According to justification, no, this is a sanctification issue. This is the way that we behave. Sanctification means to be set apart, um, and we are being set apart. We are being um, you know, separated from, you know, other people in that way. We are growing. The Holy Spirit is working through us in order to grow us, okay? And this is all uh, part of that. So, none of the stuff that I'm going over, if you found yourself doing any of these things, your justification, your salvation as a whole is not at stake here, all right? This is a sanctification aspect. You are learning, and by doing this and studying and learning as Scripture tells us to do, you are growing and you can internalize this and you're becoming more and more Christ-like. Okay. There's, I mean, there's other aspects of, of, of growing in Christ, you know, where the sacraments come in, um, you know, re receiving um, grace in that way, which is, is different. I mean, we've talked about the difference between, you know, the favor of God, the favor dei and um, grace being infused with you or gratia infusa um, and, and how those two things, you know, are, are separate. Um, in, in their understanding that we are justified forensically, but I believe that um, Scripture also points us to being um, sanctified uh, through, um, through infusion, um, that the, the sanctification is through um, you know, a measure of grace that is being infused within us. In that way, that's like helping us through. Um, does it come only through the sacraments? I don't think so. Um, but the sacraments are definitely a part of it. That's my own little rant on that. I mean, we can do a theology pit later on in that. 
But anyways, getting to the fourth commandment here is the one that we're focusing on, the Sabbath day. So it says, remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days, you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to your Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or the resident foreigner who is in the gates. And you can keep that going. I mean, your pets can't do anywhere. Nobody can do anywhere. Anybody that falls under your control, under your jurisdiction, no matter what, they cannot do any absolute work. None. Nothing. Okay. And why are you doing that? Because in verse 11 here, I'm in Exodus 20, by the way, in verse 11, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. And that's Saturday. So this has a twofold um, use. Number one, it was to, um, you know, stop people from working people to death, abusing them. It's setting up a type of structure within their society. Again, this is a theocracy. It's, it is a, a governmental system that is established by God, and only God can establish a theocracy. So no Christians, no matter how hard you try, you cannot establish a theocracy. It doesn't work that way. Okay? It has to be established specifically by God. Another aspect of this is in order for people to remember the accounts in Genesis, what happened on day one, what happened on day two, it's a mnemonic device, okay? And they know that, you know, on the Sabbath day, that's part of this mnemonic device that they learned in uh, in the book of Genesis, that, um, you know, this is the seventh day that, you know, the world, the universe was created in seven or six days with the seventh day as a rest day. You know, is it an eternal rest? I mean, when people give the argument of, you know, the uh, and, and young earth thing or that God, it was six literal days that God created everything. Well, did he only rest for 24 hours or, you know, when it says he rested from his creation, rested from his work, did he? you know, completely restaurant. And therefore he is not creating anymore. You know, he stopped from creating anything else. How long does that go on? Well, it's probably gone on for a long time. So, um, this is kind of where we're at getting into this whole understanding of the Sabbath. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, with our understanding of the Sabbath and what's going on here, let's apply the whole understanding of Christ to this, okay? Is this something that we have to do in order for our justification? Well, no. We don't stop working on everything. I mean, I've known people that um, they refuse to cut their grass on Sunday because it's Sabbath day. They don't do any work. Um, There have been people who they refuse to do anything. Their families actually do nothing when they come home from church, but lay down and try to take a nap. And just sleep most all the day because no work can be done. 
and that's it. And they have to do that, or they feel that they are breaking the Sabbath day. Christ is our Sabbath day rest, okay? He created everything. We are resting in him. It is finished. He is. He did everything. We do not have to hold on to the Sabbath as something that we feel that we must do in order to attain or maintain our salvation, which means because of Christ, we are free to serve others. We are free to go out and actually do work. Because think about it like this. If you think that the Sabbath day is Sunday and is a day of rest and that you should not work on it, why don't you fire your preachers? They're working on the Sabbath day. That is their job. Why don't you fire the um, you know the deacons and the elders and the priests and everybody that runs the church, the people that open up the church, anybody that does anything that's that is considered work? Why don't you fire them? Why don't you get rid of them? Why do you not consider them to be breaking the Sabbath day? The reason is, is because you say, no, they're doing God's work. They're serving others. Yes, bingo. That's it. That's the answer. It's not just because they are priests or pastors that they then have the um, you know, divine right to live under a different set of laws or rules as you do. And the reason why is because as a Christian, you too are a priest. Christ is our high priest, okay? It's called the priesthood of all believers. Jesus is our high priest, okay? This is a father-son priesthood, okay? Just to use you know, the, the biblical understanding here is the father-son priesthood of this. This is why you can work for others. Your family is your primary ministry in a father-son priesthood, but after that comes the service of others. So you can serve other people even on the Sabbath day. Jesus said that man was not made for the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was made for man. What does he mean the Sabbath day was made for man? It was made for man like me individually? No, mankind, you can go and serve people on the Sabbath day. You know, stop the work that you're doing elsewhere and serve other people. You have, this is a day that's put aside where you should have no obligations except for the ones that you make serving other people. Okay? People would say to Jesus and his disciples, they're doing what's not lawful for them to do on the Sabbath day. And he was, and what were they doing mostly? Feeding themselves. And he would even say, you know, cause they were, you know, they were actually making bread on, on a Sabbath day. They were, they were serving themselves. They were feeding themselves. And, you know, Jesus said, well, didn't even David and, you know, his soldiers eat the consecrated bread that, you know, that only the priests were allowed to eat. When, when they were there. I mean, when, the man with the withered hand, you know, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath day? Is he actually going to do work on the Sabbath day? And that's when, you know, I, and I talked about this before with the um, uh, Maccadean, uh, you know, the revolt and, and everything that was going on there. And, you know, what's better to do to heal or to kill? And it's like, no, he's serving other people. Serving other people is the point of the Sabbath, 
That is what we should be doing. And Christ is our Sabbath day rest because he is constantly serving us. And in return, we should be constantly serving other people. Now, this father-son priesthood was, in a way, given to... Um, Aaron, Moses' brother, you know, specifically within this this contextual understanding, because we're reading out of Genesis 20, and then we're moving into Genesis 28 here, um, where it says, you know, and you bring near your brother Aaron and his sons with him from among the Israelites so that they may be, uh, so that they may minister as my priests, father-son priesthood, okay? Now, is this the newest Understanding, did God just all of a sudden create in this under the Levitical law a father son priesthood? No, not at all. This father son priesthood was was given to them, solidified after the golden calf thing to only be for the Israelites who were in the tribe of Levi. They were the only ones that could then from then on, you know, make this sacrifice. You know, could um, you know be this intermediate intermediate position um, between man and God? Um, they kind of held this, but it was specifically given to them because there had to be one group of people set aside. Okay, now this is a a a royal priesthood, a a holy people, a royal priesthood type thing. And if you're if you're thinking, wait a minute, I've I've heard that type of language before. Yeah, it's it, first Peter two nine. Okay. Um in, in first Peter two nine, Peter is writing and he says to, to Christians. Now, he's writing to Christians, okay? And he says, and, uh, and, and more likely this is very broad, very general, so it's probably for um, Gentile Christians as well as Jewish Christians by this time in his life. Hopefully he got the message after, you know, Paul said all these things because Peter's also said, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that Paul writes is hard to, you know, understand, but he definitely, um, yeah, he definitely said it. And, you know, if, if you have a... Um, a, a Bible that would have you know reference points to it. You'll probably see a reference from um, Deuteronomy, uh, you know, twenty six and eighteen, and uh, the First um, uh, Peter two nine. First Peter two nine says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Very similar wording and, and, con, and you know, understanding um, of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. You know, they came out of Egypt, you're coming out of darkness into light, out of, you know, slavery into freedom. Uh, from from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy twenty six eighteen says the Lord today has declared you to be His people, a treasured possession, and He promised you, as He promised you, that you should keep all of His commandments. We do this within Christ. Okay, so within us, the the Christian Church is Israel, according to Peter's thinking. We are then this royal priesthood. How are we a royal priesthood? Because we're found in Christ. Christ is our high priest and king. Paul, as we've gone through in the justification series and you know, from and from the last podcast that I did in justification, we saw how Paul was saying that we are justified because of the faithfulness of Christ. Okay. And to do that, you know, 
Paul was using the example of Abram, of Abraham, you know, being uh, uncircumcised, but God's declaring the ungodly righteous, declaring him righteous, you know, saying that he is just, he is justified. But there's something else in there, and I think I've I, I've touched on this, uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, Melchizedek was the king of uh, Salem, which later became Jerusalem, okay? And he um, was not only the... Um, the king of Salem, but he was also the high priest. So you have this image of a high priest and a king. That's the same imagery that is used in the New Testament of Christ, that he is the high priest and king. And this Melchizedekian concept is brought out, um, especially in the book of Hebrews. And we'll get to that in a second, but you need to understand who Melchizedek is here. So Abram goes to him, okay, and he blesses Abram, Okay, saying that um, blessed be Abram by the most high God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praise is the most high God who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Okay, the tithe, you know, a a 10%, you know, that benchmark. But before that, something happened. He, before he blessed Abram, what he did was he made a sacrifice. Okay, and the sacrifice that he brought out in a time of bloody animal sacrifice, Melchizedek, the high priest and king of Salem, brings out bread and wine, not slain animals, bread and wine. This is a very powerful Christological image. Okay, Melchizedek, having no mother, no father. That we that we know of, it's not said. It's 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 a mystery. He is just high priest and king. It is as though he came out of nowhere. Okay, very strong ties to the concept of the Son of Man. You know, from from the book of Daniel, coming in the clouds. Nobody knows where he came from. That's why you know they were rejecting Christ. You know, because they were saying that we isn't this isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the son of Mary? You know, I mean, even calling the son of Mary was much more pejorative, but they were saying, isn't, isn't, don't we know where he comes from? Okay. The Melchizedekian priesthood, we wouldn't know where he came from. The son of man, we wouldn't know where he came from. We know where this guy comes from. And they were trying to use that as a way to say, there's no way this guy can be the Messiah that we're looking for because he doesn't fit this criteria. But yet through the miracles that he was doing and ultimately through the resurrection, he proved that what he was saying was true. So more validity and more weight goes to the words of Christ and what he said, proving that he was God, than do the detractors and the people who were saying, no, this this can't be right. So, Melchizedek is this, um, this high priest and this king, and he is uh, also mentioned again in um, uh, Psalm 110, uh, it says, the Lord uh, makes this promise on oath and will not revoke it. You are an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, it's a psalm that David's writing, and it could very well be pointing towards Christ, this Melchizedekian priesthood. This Melchizedekian priesthood is this type of father-son priesthood. Okay, What was just put on the Levites? And giving that image, that type of father-son priesthood, 
was actually accomplished by the work of Christ. It was redone. When we talked in in the Salvation series about the recapitulation view of the atonement, that Christ had to redo everything that Adam was supposed to do in order, um, you know, for us to be fully represented. He's setting back that pattern because in the time before. Uh, all of this stuff was happening with, um, you know, uh, the Israelites in, in Egypt and, and Moses and Aaron and what's going on here in the Levitical priesthood and all that stuff. Before that, you had um, the concept of the father being the head of the household and he was the one that went before God and he was the one that made sacrifices. He was the one who served others, serving his family primarily, but serving others in that way. And the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible um, written you know, chronologically, um, it would be the oldest one. And what's the image there that Job would get up in the morning and he would go and he would make sacrifices for his sons and daughters, for his family. That's what he did. The father son priesthood is still there with, um, the, the book of Genesis with, with Adam and, um, and then, you know, um, Seth and then, you know, you had, well, I guess, uh, you know, Cain and Abel and everything, same thing. Father, son, priesthood, father, son, priesthood. They were making sacrifices. They were building altars and making sacrifices. Father, son, priesthood, father, son, priesthood. In Exodus, it gets taken away and it definitely gets solidified as being taken away after the golden calf incident. And these are people are set apart, but there would come one who would reestablish this father, son, priesthood. And that was Christ. And so, if we jump to um, Hebrews 7, we can get this understanding, because Hebrews 7 starts out and says, Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham appointed a tithe of everything. His first name means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, that is, king of peace. These are the titles that Melchizedek not only has, but what the name means. Okay. It's not just a name that kind of sounded good. It actually has like Hebrew meaning to it. And we miss that a lot in English because our names really don't have any meaning to them. I mean, very soon. My, my name is Samson. You know, it comes from the Hebrew, uh, Shimsham, which, uh, means the son of the sun. And not like, like the, you know, not like I'm like a grandson, like my grandfather, but the son of like that orb in the sky that gives light. It's a, it's actually a pagan name. Um, but it's a it's a Hebrew word for a pagan name, and it means the sun of that orb in the, in the sky, sun of the sun, which has a type of you know Old Testament ancient deity concept to it. Okay, um, in Egypt, you know Ra, the sun god, probably stuck with them. You know, after a while, they I mean they you know understood all this stuff. They saw the cultures around them. People worshipped the sun. That was a thing. Um, but so I. I I carry with me, you know, this, uh, this, this Hebrew pronunciation understanding of a, um, a, a pagan, you know, concept for a name. But whenever I tell people that my name is Samson, they, that's not what they think. That's not the image that comes in their head. Maybe if they're, if they're Christians, if they're they're all, and they go to the Bible, you know, and they say, oh, you know, uh, Samson and, and Delilah, or, you know, um, you know, if, if they're, you know, people that grew up in the 1970s, remember the old cartoon, they'd say, oh, Samson and Goliath. And it's like, uh, okay, well, that's from the seventies cartoon. Goliath was, you know, what is his dog that became a lion or something. I, I, I can't remember, uh, exactly, but, um, uh, it, you know, my, my point is being that Melchizedek, 
has a particular name and a particular connotation. And this is what is then given to, um, given over to Christ. And it goes on to say, in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but is like the Son of God, and he remains a priest for all time. But see how great he must be. If Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of his plunder, and all and those of the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have authorized according to the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their fellow countrymen, although they too are descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who does not share their ancestry, collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who promised the promise. Now, without dispute, the inferior is blessed by the superior, and in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, while in the other, by him who is affirmed to be alive. And it could be said that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid a tithe through Abraham, for he was still his ancestor in his ancestor Abraham's loins when Melchizedek met him. Okay, um, and that 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 is a, a concept. If we ever get into uh, anthropology, um, with the idea of we were all in Adam because we all came from Adam, and so um, you know this this understanding of um, that's that's why I hold to being a, a traducian that the parents create both the body and the soul. And that, you know, God is the primary creator and we are secondary. Because and this goes back to, you know, did God truly rest on the Sabbath day and not create anymore? And if you say, Well, yeah, he did, well then he's not creating any souls and putting them in. He created everything. And unless you go to a um pre existence soul theory that um, you know, some early church fathers did, origin uh, most notably held to it, uh, but nobody else does. It it doesn't um it, it's not I wouldn't say, let's just say that it's a heterodoxical belief, not an orthodoxical belief. Um, uh, hetero meaning, you know, other, different belief, um, rather than, you know, orthodoxy, which is right belief. Um, you know, he's, he's saying that this is why Adam, we all fell in Adam, and because we all fell in Adam, we can all be redeemed in Christ, because Christ died for the sin of mankind, singular, the sin, but he also died for all of our sins, but he died for, you know, individual sins, but the sin, the original sin of mankind, of what Adam did. And, you know, in the salvation series, I, I, I went through all that, that I'm not going to rehash out here again. Um, but then, uh, if you skip down in here, it says, um, I'm probably just going to read this whole chapter of, of Hebrews. Uh, this is a very good you know, I, I really like the book of Hebrews. It's, it, if you want to know how a lot of the Old Testament and New Testament tie together, read the book of Hebrews. Um, so, uh, verse 11, so if perfection had been, uh, had in fact been possible through the Levitical priesthood, for on that basis the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in Aaron's order? For when the priesthood changes, a change in the law must come as well. 
Yet the one, the one these things are spoken about belongs to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever officiated at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord is a descendant from Judah. Yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeliness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not by legal regulation about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is the testimony about him. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former command is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And since this was not done without a sworn affirmation, for the others have become priests without a sworn affirmation. But Jesus did so with a sworn affirmation by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever." Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, and the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently since he lives forever. So, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. For it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to do every day what those priests do, to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did uh, this in offering himself once and for all. For the law appoints as high priest men subject to weakness, but the word of solemn affirmation that came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever." This to say, Jesus Christ is our high priest and king, and we serve him. So, in him, the Sabbath day, the rest is made perfect. In him, Sunday, the Lord's day, the first day, he set everything perfect again. He redid what God stated that was going to occur uh, in Genesis, um, I think three or four in there with the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, when God pretty much says, I'm going to make this all right. I'm going to straighten this out. Um, you know, and, and he did. And he did it through Christ. It's full circle. It's completely closed. This is a closed system in which God started it and God completed it. And only God could do it. Because he even said there that uh, to, to the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush your head. In the uh, Septuagint, the uh, Greek word for that is spermatos, and women don't produce sperm. That's what made it so interesting, and that's why you know the virgin birth has such this you know um, heavy. Uh, I don't want to say response, but this heavy um, uh, has so much weight to it uh, because of all that. Now there's there's you know. More later on, um, I, I believe in um, uh, the uh, New Testament uh, in Hebrews about Melchizedek, 
but it's being used mostly to, to rehash kind of what we already went over um, in, in just, you know, solidifying that, um, you know, that Jesus is um, high priest in the order of Melchizedek and this father-son priesthood. Now, by him establishing this father-son priesthood and being our high priest, um, who has constantly made sacrifice for us, if you think about the book of Revelation, he still, John still sees him as a lamb that looks as though it's been slain. That means that there is a forgiveness that is occurring. There is a forgiveness of sins there. So, you know, it's it's a constant ongoing thing. And the wording that Paul uses, um, like in, in Ephesians, when, you know, he he used the word save in, in the... the um, idea of yeah past and present ongoing past present and future in the um in the uh, the the perfect tense he is is trying to let us know that we as christians as individuals are these high priests okay we are this royal priesthood we are in the line of Melchizedek we are in the way that job was and as you know heads of households as the you know being parents as being adults and I know I'm using all the masculine terms here for it but this this does apply to to all um, you know because of this we can go to God in um, in prayer for one another we can serve one another constantly so the Sabbath day in order order to honor it the best way you can honor it is by serving someone else okay go and serve other people there are lots of charities you can serve with your church probably has places you can serve with but you can serve primarily with your family spend time with your family um you know go and 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 do things talk about god teach your children, you know, just, just be together, be with each other. Your primary ministry is to your family as this father, son, high priest relationship in the order of Melchizedek. And on the Lord's day, we come together to worship God as one within the body of Christ. And we can serve each other then too, can also serve throughout the week, but specifically If you're going to take one day, if you're busy all week and you need to take one day in order to be freed from any other obligation that you have in order to make a living and provide for your family, that it's Saturday that you then take to serve because Sunday is the Lord's day and you may be serving in church already. You may be, you know, serving God's people, but serving your family, that is the whole point of the Sabbath day to serve others, to get into counseling, to do work, to do good. Can you imagine what it would be like in the Christian church if, if all Christians had this concept and this understanding of the Sabbath day, that it's not an inward selfish look that I need to rest, I need to relax because I need to do this for me, you know, and it's about me and my relationship with God. It's a me and God thing, but it's a corporate thing. No, I am now free to actually go and work for others. I'm free to go and help other people. This, it would be, it would be so different. I mean, you would have people every Saturday constantly going out and, you know, helping, you know, helping the elderly do something, you know, I don't know what, you know, drive them around places, take out their garbage, fix their roof, um, whatever, just go be with them, sit with them and talk with them, you know, fellowship, give them that companionship. 
thanks for listening listening to the theology pit i really appreciate it please um you know like and share this with your friends on facebook um you know i i still have a patreon page i'm not doing a lot with but if you'd like to donate there you could you could go to samsonstick.com um and you could also uh donate there send me an email samson at samsonstick.com um, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, go on iTunes if you haven't subscribed. Subscribe, um, rate it, and like it. And um, you know, maybe write a little something too. Help me move up in there. Thank you. And now it's definitely time to close down the pit. <laughs>